Thank you, Pastor Chad. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to worship with you on this last Advent Sunday before Christmas. Um, it's exciting as we build up to it. Glad to be in this text this morning. I hope you'll see how fitting it is. And again, we take no credit for that. We didn't plan that. Um, but the Lord has ordained that. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we gather this morning around Your Word. Lord, I ask that You would, Father, send Your life-given Spirit and that He would bring life. Father, I pray that He would awaken new life where there might be dead, stone-cold hearts. And Lord, I pray for, for those who are here that are believers who believe in the truth of Jesus Christ, believe what the claims of the Advent season teach us. And Father, I pray that You would encourage. I pray that the name of Christ would be heralded among us this morning. But Father, we know that will only be done by the work of Your Spirit. It's an amazing thing that we sinners can be gathered around the revelation of God and we can be encouraged because we are now freed from our sin. Lord, let us enjoy that this morning. But bring life. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, we are in Galatians chapter 5, which means we've marched through the first four chapters. Um, we're slowly getting towards the end. Uh, and uh, this is a very important turn for Paul as he moves the argumentation, this is the transition where he's going to go from just stout argumentation about what's been going on and move us into, so then now what? Um, and a lot of that happens in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. So let's dig right in. Um, and we see there in verse 1, we have, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, Paul says you were free, so go be set free. And if that seems to you a bit simple-minded, if that seems to you like maybe that's easier than it sounds, then that means you get it. <laughs> that's exactly what Paul is after. It's an overtly obvious point, and he means it to be an overtly obvious point. He is saying Christ set you free so that you would no longer be enslaved. So quit living like you are enslaved. So recall, that the, that the Galatians had come to uh, Christ under the teachings of Paul and that Paul believed they had an authentic faith. He believed that. And we know that when Paul left them, some false teachers crept in. We know that they began teaching that if they wanted to go further in their walk, they convinced the Galatians that they had to do more than that which Paul told them. They basically said, Paul hasn't told you really everything you need. If you want to make progress, you've got to do some things like circumcision and rituals, etc. And Paul's response is the book of Galatians. And Paul's response is that 
is a demonic, dangerous lie. There is something in us, like the Galatians, that wants to demonstrate that we can pull this off. And we said last time, after looking closely at chapter 4, Paul gives us the reason why we want to say that. Because if we can pull this off, then we can take credit. That is, if we have no righteousness of our own, then we have no reason to take any credit for any righteousness. And we, because of our selfless flesh nature, are desperately in desire of credit. We desire self-reliance because we desire self-exaltation. It's exactly what Paul says got them enslaved. That's why they listened. And if you don't think, if you hear this and go, I don't think we really have a strong desire on our part or any temptation like this, just for a second, consider what these false teachers pulled off. I mean, just think about this. They came in to a group of men in an age centuries prior to modern anesthetics and sharp instruments, and they convinced them that they could add to their standing before God by being circumcised. And the Galatians heard that proposition and said, yep, that sounds like a good idea. Now, I'm just going to be honest. I got a feeling if the pastors decided to approach the deacons with some type of proposition anywhere akin to this, we would probably not be getting a, that's a good idea response, right? But the Galatians said, that's a good idea. Now, on one sense, it's comical. But on another sense, I hope it proves exactly what Paul is trying to say. We have such a strong human propensity for self-credit, self-exaltation, via self-reliance and self-righteousness, that we will go to incredible links, unsensible links, to get that. If you recall last time, we used this analogy. We used the analogy of a massive farm. Perhaps it's so large we would call it a village. And it's owned by the wealthiest man alive, we said in this analogy. And we said that he's not just the wealthiest man alive. He's 10 million times wealthier than any other man on earth. And we said that in his huge village that he, only, that he has with him one son, his only son, we said that within this village there are scores and scores of indentured servants. These are people who are rightful servants of His because they have a rightful debt to Him or their family has a rightful debt and they will spend the rest of their life in servanthood because they cannot even begin to pay it off. And then we said, now what if at some point the owner's son goes and chooses some of those servants and decides to take his inheritance, and for those servants, he buys their debt outright. He then goes and adopts them. Says, okay, you are actually... My father used to have one son, but now he's going to have many sons because we are going to legally adopt you into the family. And then we said, what happens after all of that if he says, and I am going to take my inheritance and give you inheritance? We said, imagine 
What a change in life for those servants. They go immediately from completely in bondage to now free. They go from nobodies to now rightful sons to the wealthiest man on the planet. They go from having nothing in their bank accounts to being well endowed. Now this is an imperfect picture of what Christ has done for us. It's imperfect not because it's any more, but because it's less of what He did for us. But I think it helps us see the incredible life-changing freedom that comes to believers in Christ. You go from a servant to free. You go from a nobody to a rightful heir. You go from destitute to well endowed, all because of the gift of the oldest son. And Paul says, He set you free so that you would be free. <laughs> and then he continues, so why would you dare go back and live like indentured servants? This is senseless as one of those servants going back and asking to pay their debt. And Paul now turns in verse 2 to exactly that point. He says, that is belittling to the oldest son. Verse 2, look. This is verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you go on trying to earn your way to God, then Christ, the Son, is of no benefit for you. So imagine, go back to the analogy, imagine the day after one of these chosen servants has had all this happen for them, he goes into the accounts department and he says, I would like for you to take a look at my account. Now you're working there in the accounts department, you know the deal with this servant, so you're thinking, oh, he wants to see now how high his, his balance is. I mean, he's, he now knows he's got that inheritance. So you pull the file, and he says, no, 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 not that one, not that one. Can you go back to the, my original file? How much did I really owe? How hard would it be for me to really get that paid off if he hadn't paid it off? How belittling to the oldest son and what it's done if you now are trying to pay off everything he gave up so much for. It's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying if you want to live like that, then the gift of the oldest son becomes immediately of no advantage to you. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is now obliged to keep the whole law. In other words, go ahead. Go ahead and start trying to pay that balance again. But you will owe the whole balance. And do not forget, you would have never, ever come close to paying it off. If you want to own part of it, you've got to own all of it. Verse 4, You are severed from Christ. That is, if you continue down this road, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. 
don't know if you all are fans of the Cosby Show, but um, I'm a big fan of the Cosby Show. Heather and I, uh, I, I think we might even own all the episodes. Uh, I don't know where they are, but uh, we do. I, I know we've watched them all. I love the show. I love how Cliff and Claire Huxtable, and this is, there's many things to love about it, but they are masters at allowing their, child, their children's senselessness to be played out, right? I absolutely love it. Uh, so one of the kids will be upset about one of the parental directions that they've been given. You've seen this. And, and they'll spout off something senseless. And usually Cliff will say, got it? Let's own that. You want to wear that? Let's let you walk around in that uniform for a little while. So one of my favorite episodes is when Theo decides he's had it and he's gonna, he wishes if they would just let him be and treat him like he were free, it'd be a lot easier and he would have it a lot easier that way. So before, like he wakes up the next morning, the whole house, you probably remember this, is transformed into where it's now all apartments. And Cliff's no longer his dad. He's now a billing manager for the apartments. And he's got to, Theo has to now pay rent. He's got to pay for his own food. But he's treated free, right? You remember this, right? Folks, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. It's the exact same game he's playing. Oh, you want to be a big boy? Well, then put on your big boy pants. Walk in it, Right? He says, you want to walk in all of your own righteousness? No problem. But you're severed from Christ. You want to be justified by the law? No problem. But you will be falling away from grace. Why? Because the gift of the Son becomes useless to you. Now, we're going to walk through verse 1 through 15 this morning. Chad only read verses 1 through 6 because, and you'll see why here in a second. Um, what we've seen is that the first four verses, and I think I'm going to lay out for you how I'm going to go about this. Um, yeah, so the way that this will break down is verses 5 and 6 are basically a Christian alternative to self-reliance. Um, in verses, and I think the way the text is, it's my fault, not theirs. The way the text is up there, you can't see the first part. Verses 1 through 4, this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm going to show you how ridiculous your idea is. I'm going to show you how ridiculous the idea of self-reliance is. And then, I'm going to turn around in verse 12, 7 through 12, and I'm going to tell you, show you, how ridiculous the people are who taught you this. And then verse 5 and 6 are him basically saying, I'm going to give you the Christian alternative. And you're going to see in verse 13 through 15, I'm going to echo the exact same thing. So what I want us to do now is actually jump to 7 through 12. Because remember, 1 through 4 is it's a ridiculous idea. 7 through 12 is and the people who taught it to you are ridiculous. So he's already attacked their idea. Now he's going to attack the people who gave them the idea. You with me? Alright, so verse 7. Now, just keep in mind that as Paul is going through here in 7 through 12, I mean, the idea of a parent lecturing their child is the best thing uh, because it's a passionate plea. And I say that because if you've, if you've ever been lectured by a parent or ever handed down one of those lectures, you realize that's not a linear delivery, right? We talked about this last time. It'll be one of those, you know, they're complaining about you don't give them enough money and then all of a sudden you're listing out for them, oh, well, I pay for your food, I pay for your rent, um, or, your, or the house over your head, I pay for your clothes. And speaking of your clothes, right? And then 
You leave your clothes laying around all the time. And then before you know it, you're back to the money situation. It's exactly what's happening in 7 through 12. You're going to see Paul, da 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 da. Oh, and by the way, and back again, da 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 da. That's exactly what we're going to see. So watch this. Let's start with verse 10 and watch. This is the parenthetical part. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And to the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In the midst of condemning false teachers, Paul tells the Galatians that he is confident, in fact, he's persuaded, that they are going to take a different view. They are not going to land where these teachers have taught them, how they've taught them. That's a really interesting point in the midst of all this. Out of all this hammering, he comes back out and says, I'm confident. You're not going to land here. But it's real important that you see where he bases his confidence. I'm confident because, I'm confident because I know you guys. I'm confident because I've seen your works. I'm con- None of that. He says here, I have confidence in the Lord. Right? I have confidence in the Lord. You can hear. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Right? That's his confidence. That's an amazing statement in the midst of this, I think. I think it's highly encouraging. And then he wants them in the midst of it. He's talking about himself here. Again, he's just arguing. He says, I want you to know that I do not still preach circumcision. Now, Paul has to say still preach circumcision because there was a time that he did preach circumcision, right? In fact, it's worse than that. These teachers are preaching Christ plus circumcision. He at one point taught circumcision only, right? And Paul is now saying, I do not still preach it. And it's interesting. He says, how do you know I don't still preach it? Because I am being persecuted. Why do folks persecute Him for not preaching circumcision any longer? Again, this is a subtle point. Why would you persecute Paul for not preaching circumcision any longer? This is profound. The cross plus something offends no one. Let me say that again. The cross plus something offends no one. As if you teach that salvation comes by believing in the cross plus some other stuff, people are going to be fine with that. But when you preach the cross with no additions, when you preach that the cross is our only hope, our only trust must lie solely in the work of God, in spite of our effort, you will greatly offend because you take out all grounds for self-reliance and therefore you pull out the very grounds for self-exaltation. And we do not like that. Then verse 7, I've got to be honest with you, you're going to get a little bit of Paul unplugged here. We're going to go from G to PG-13 pretty quickly. Um, I wish I was mistaken about that, but I'm dead on. Um, You are running well. 
Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then jump, jump to verse 12. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> For seconds you thought I was reading from a GQ interview with Duck Dynasty, but that's not the case. Um, uh, that, that's not it at all. In all seriousness, I have to tell you, the first time I read this years ago, I'll never forget reading this and going, does it say that? Like, I honestly thought, surely there's a mistranslation in the English compared to the original. Because there's no way that Paul wrote that. And there's really no way the Spirit of God inspired that, right? I mean, how can you, right? And I'm going to tell you, to be honest with you, it's actually worse in the Greek. I'm not going to repeat what it is in the Greek, right? It, it makes you shudder. That's amazing. We're going to get back to that. Um, but, but he starts by reminding them that they were running well and somebody turned them. He says that the new teaching did not come from God. He's making a, a rhetoric statement here. Well, if it didn't come from God, then presumably, who did it come from? Go back to chapter 4 and we said that Paul's already said this comes straight from the evil one himself. The demons are behind it. And that was grounded very well by Paul in chapter 4. He reminds them how dangerous this bad teaching is because it is contagious. It spreads like leaven in dough. And then in verse 12, he basically says that those who think so highly of circumcision should go ahead and go the extra mile. That is, if, if we think that legalism is not a big deal, this is how the Spirit of God is going to respond, Paul says. You think legalism is not a big deal? Says the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God says, let me tell you how sickened I am by legalism. And then we get what we get in verse 12. I'm telling you, I read that, and there's part of me at that point that begins to say, Tim, you've got to take legalism seriously. It's not a small deal. It's not a small deal if the Spirit of God is willing to use the language that is used there. Alright, so we've looked at Paul's negative argument. We've looked at how it is the Galatians should not live. And now we're going to turn to his positive argument and how it is that God desires the Galatians to live. Now he's sprinkled the positive argument throughout the book, but he's going to go real heavy quick here, and I tell you, please, listen closely, especially verse 5. You're going to walk in some of the most sacred halls of Christian doctrine. This is some of the most hallowed ground we have. And what Paul touches in one verse is unbelievable. Look at verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for righteousness. <laughs> There's a series of sermons here. 
Remember, Paul is answering the question, how is it that we should live then? If we don't live legalistically, trying to earn it and getting our own self-credit, then how do we live? Paul says that we should live through the Spirit. That's the first point. We should live through the Spirit. Now, be careful. And we're going to lay out about four of these for you. When Paul says that we should live through the Spirit, He is not speaking of mere emotion, feeling, or force. Remember, the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's a person. He is God, and He is the one who is responsible for breathing life into a dead soul. Right? Remembering the creation account, how did man come alive? God did what? breathed into Him. And we don't have time now, but it doesn't take you much to realize the Spirit is given credit for that in the, in the, uh, in the account in Genesis chapter 1. It is that same Spirit who takes a dead, unbelieving soul and recreates it by breathing life into it. So Paul says that this happens through the life-giving Breath of the Spirit. We used to be dead, cold statutes. Now think about this. We were enslaved to the law and the flesh. And the Spirit breathed in us. And we were rigid, couldn't move, stuck dead. And all of a sudden, the heart starts to beat. Before you know it, life starts to come in. And Paul says, and you are going to begin to move about. How? Because the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, breathes life. Number one, the Spirit gives life. He says we live through the Spirit, but we do it how? By faith. What does Paul mean by faith? Now, this is where I've struggled a lot <laughs> this week. A whole lot. Um, we know that he holds that they had an initial faith. Remember that in in, in Galatians chapter 3, the very beginning, he says, uh, how is it that you who began by the Spirit through faith, right? So we know they, they had an initial faith. So now he's talking about something more than just that initial faith that gives them this life rendering alternative to legalism. So what is that? I got a lot of help this week. Um, not happen chance. I know God is good. That uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This has two chapters on faith. The first chapter is exactly what we talked about. It's initial doctrinal belief that says that is what I believe about the Son of God. And that's the initial faith that the Spirit brings inside a person. And you say, Aha! Christ is who He says He is. But then... Then he has a second chapter. <laughs> it is glory. If you don't have a copy of Mere Christianity, I beg you, I plead with you, get, a co- get two and give one away. It is unbelievably helpful. If you don't know a gift to give somebody at this last moment, I'm sure Amazon can get it to your front door in time. I beg you, if, 
if you know any of our young people here and you don't think they have a copy of this, you get them one because they have a Christmas break and they promise to read this by the end of their break before they go back. It's how, incre- how incredibly... I'm telling you, this book is so good. Um, it really is. You will not wait. See us, look, we just celebrated the 50th, 50 years ago, on the same day that JFK died, we lost Lewis. Anyway, um, this, this, let me tell you what he says here in this chapter on faith. And it was so helpful for what Paul's up to. He says, I'm trying to talk about faith in the higher sense. Please listen. It's, it, you have to just hang on. Faith in this sense arises after a man has tried his level best to practice the Christian virtues and found that he fails. In other words, he discovers his bankruptcy. A man cannot get into the right direction until he has discovered the fact of his bankruptcy. And when I say discovered, I mean really Discovered, not simply parrot fashion. So Lewis is saying that faith in this sense happens in a believer when he is tried on his own and discovered he's getting nowhere. And he says, actually discovered. That is, anybody who's ever sat in Sunday school long at all knows if asked, can you bring about your own righteousness? Everybody knows to answer no to that question. Right? You answer Jesus or you answer no to that one. Right? It's that easy. You know that. And Lewis says, not talking about that. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about a person who is tried with everything they can and comes to the end of it and says, I am getting nowhere. And he says, that is the point at which this faith begins. (laughs) So, So what does this have to do with faith and trust? That sounds like it's just mere moral bankruptcy. It's the initial part. Lewis continues, The sense in which a Christian leaves it to God is that he puts all his trust in Christ. He trusts that Christ will somehow share with him the perfect obedience which he carried out from his birth to his crucifixion. In Christian language, he will share His sonship with us. He will make us like Himself sons of God. Can you hear Galatians chapter 4 here, right? You're adopted. Adopted to what? The sons of God. So, so this faith is, you come to a point when you say, I'm getting nowhere. And then you turn and say, and He's got everything. I need. He trusts that Christ will share with him his obedience. Look at the end of verse 5 there. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It's exactly what Lewis is talking about. This is what we call the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now please, I'm begging and pleading that you not tune out here. This is not simply a lofty theological discussion. This is help and life, believe me. 
If you've never heard of the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, it's fine. Let me explain. I know we don't use the word impute much. I don't walk around using it much. I'm just going to be honest. But we do use a word similar. We use the word dispute, don't we? And what does it mean to dispute? What is a dispute? It's when there are two differing accounts. Everybody with me so far? Got a dispute. You got two differing accounts. So it's got to do with accounts, but a dispute has with the fact that they're different, right? Well, an impute is pretty similar, just very different. (laughs) It's got to do with accounts, but instead of it talking about the differences, it's talking about one account being placed into another account. That's what it means to impute. So when we say that we believe in imputation, this matters a ton. It's hugely important to Christianity. We believe that on the cross, our sin, our count, here's us, here's all our nasty sin, was what? It was our count was imputed onto Christ. And when He went on the cross, He didn't suffer one second for His own sin. He suffered for our sin. And it was really our sin. Everybody with me? That's that's part of it. To deny that is to deny the Gospel. Now I would imagine that if I ask any one of you, or at least most of you, if Christians will sin when you get to heaven, I would imagine most of you are going to respond with, no, we don't sin when we get to heaven. But have you ever wondered why? How is it? They would all sin. I would also say, if I ask you to define what is it if a person's fully righteous, you would say, well, they're a person who doesn't sin. So that means, if we don't sin, we get to heaven, and to be fully righteous is a person who doesn't sin, that means when we get to heaven, all of us are fully righteous. Everybody with me? How? <laughs> How does that happen? Well, you say, well, why does it matter? (laughs) Who cares? Well, it matters a whole lot. Let me try this example. Let's just say that Hitler somehow walked in here. He's alive, somehow walked in here. And let's say for some, I was able to convince you that all of his sins are forgiven. And you're down with that. You're all there. But then, I spent the next hour or so trying to tell you what an amazing paradigm of virtue Hitler was. How many of you all would be very convinced by that? I don't think you're going to walk out of here and go, whew, now that's a good argument. Right? You're not. But why? All of his sins are forgiven. Why is he not a paradigm for virtue? Because you know who Hitler is. Right? So we got this problem. Yeah, all of our sins get imputed to Christ. Everybody with me? All of them get imputed to Christ. So they're all paid for. So now we're sitting with bank account zero. No credit whatsoever. You get to heaven, you're still the person that sinned if that's all you believe. So you're still the one who did all that stuff. Nobody's counting you righteous. And nobody understands why you won't do all that stuff again. If that's all we believe. The Gospel is so much more than that. 
The Gospel says that's only half the story. The Gospel says it's not just that Christ imputed took your sin and was imputed to Christ. It's the amazing story that the most perfect human being to ever walk the planet, every second of His obedience was actually imputed to you. So when you walk into heaven, you walk in with the righteousness of Christ. It would shock heaven if you sin like it would shock heaven if Christ Himself sinned. That's the righteousness we have. That's unbelievable. And here's the incredible part. It's not just future tense. I'm telling you, this will rock, slam rock your world if you get it. It's right now. When Christ looks at you, brother, sister, He doesn't see bank a person who used to have a bunch of sins and just no longer has them. He doesn't see bank account zero. He sees bank account plumb full of righteousness. And it's Christ. That's yours right now. He could not be any more pleased with you than He already is. Paul is saying, you dare walk around in legalism when the Son of God did what He did. How dare you? The righteousness of Christ is mine. I wrote this statement down. Not only is there no beef between you and God, but there is sheer joy. Now just stop. Some of you need to hear it. He is proud of you. He is deeply proud. When He thinks of you, there is a shine. He loves you so much. And you could hear Martin Luther say, and praise God, you had nothing to do with it except you contributed your sin. That's it. Don't try to take credit for that. If you take credit, take credit for where credit's due. Don't play with credit. Play with what is. You say, well, Tim, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like one who's perfectly righteous. Well, that's good. I've got to be honest with you, that's good. I've got to promise you, if you came and sat down and said, Tim, I'm struggling with the fact that I feel way too perfectly righteous, then we're going to sign you up for a couple of sessions, right? Um, that's because you haven't fully experienced it. You haven't yet fully experienced it. It is not because it is not already true. It's that on this side of heaven, you haven't fully experienced it. You can hear Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about that the seed has to go and die first. And then the mortal takes on immortality. Right? That's got to happen. So what do you do? You're this one who's perfectly righteous in the, in the sight of God, and yet you're living now. What do you do? And Paul says, I'll tell you one of the things you do. You wait eagerly in anticipation for it. You wait eagerly in anticipation for it. 
That's what Advent is so helpful for. It is to stoke the fires of our souls with anticipation for what we will one day experience. Imagine a guy who's the rightful king in a land, but hardly anybody knows it. And if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, you're not going to have any, uh, not have a hard time imagining this. He knows it'll soon day be revealed that all the kingdom is his, but not everybody knows it. Brother and sister, you need to live with that tension. That's you. That is you. There is something about you that is true that most of the world will not understand. But it's true. And there's coming a day when you will rightfully enjoy it. You can hear Paul in Romans 8.21. Tell me if you can't hear this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of what? The sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of what? Spirit. The life-given Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. This means that you do not have to wait to get things together to turn to Christ. You cannot get it any more together than Christ got it on the cross. And you cannot ever get your life put in any better order than He lived the life He gave you. And so, Christian, turn from your sin. Stop it. You don't need to live like that any longer because that's not who you are. You're a perfect child of God. You're just waiting to experience it. Christians, stop trying to get the approval of God and man. You already have God's approval. Why do you give a rip about anybody else's? Final application. We'll end here. This is where Paul goes to the rest of the chapter and on in uh, uh, with verses 13 and 14. And we got to hit this real quick because otherwise I'm not going to do justice to his argument. He does this in, in verse 6, but I'm going to use 13 and 14. They just echo. 5 and 6 echo 13. 13 and 14 echo 5 and 6. So here's 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) If all of this is true, then we are free to go love others. Statement. If all of this is true, you are free. Now go love others. Why? I'm just going to give you a couple and we're closing. You're free to drop the mask and the facades. We don't have to act like we are folks who have it together. (laughs) Because all of us know that's not the truth. The Gospel has already declared in full that we are all so dreadful, we're so dreadful in our sin, that God Himself had to come and be beaten and bloodied and die on a cross to pay for it. 
That truth is out. If you say, I believe the gospel, then you are declaring, I want to stand up and I want to say, my sin is so nasty that God Himself had to bleed and die. What worse could be said about you? Now go love people. I mean, (laughs) if you stop and think about that point, the fact that Christians try to impress each other is about as silly as a bunch of one-armed monkeys trying to do the YMCA song. And saying, I do it better, right? No, you don't. You all look foolish. You've only got one arms, you stupid monkeys, right? Man, I moved to PG-13 real quick here. All right. It doesn't make any sense. You're not impressing anybody. We're all a bunch of sinners condemned to die. And then the oldest son said, no more. Then why live like we got Jack Diddley squat to offer? That's one reason you're free. I feel freer after saying that. <laughs> we, we are free to love because we see others as bankrupt as well. <laughs> that is, it's not just true about you, it's true about everybody else too. That is, we're not surprised by people's sin. Why are we surprised when people sin against us? <laughs> the gospel's already declared it. And it's declared they haven't sinned against you. But like this much compared to the infinite amount they sinned against God and He forgave them all of it. Go forgive them. You who have been forgiven little can forgive what? Much. We're free to love because we're free to stop looking out for our own interests. You don't have to worry about your needs and wants. Why? Your greatest need and want is taken care of. It's all ready, taken care of. Your greatest need was your sin held you in contempt against God and you were on your way to hell. And that, friend, was taken care of. Your greatest want, whether you realize it or not, is to live in perfect community with God. The first one was taken care of by the imputation of your sin, your greatest need. Your greatest want was taken care of by the imputation of His righteousness. He has handed you His righteousness. He lived in perfect community with the Father because He was perfectly righteous. And now so can you. There's no need and there's no want any soul can take from you that Christ has not already fully given you. That's why Paul looks death in the eyes and says, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm tired of waiting. Finally, we see that loving is the posture of Christian waiting. He says, for verse 6, from Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything but only faith working through love. Circumcision counts for nothing. What does help, how does this help you in loving? It helps you in loving because of this. While you're waiting, the best thing that can happen to us is that we die to who we are not. Let me say it one more time. The best thing that can happen to you is for you to go ahead and die to who you are not. You are perfectly righteous Son of God. You are not an imperfectly righteous 
fallen sinner. So go ahead and die to it. Well, that sounds good. How? I'm telling you, the rest of Galatians is his answer to that. Go love some people. And when you start loving on them, you're going to start seeing more of you that should die. Let it go. Let it go. We have life through the Spirit. We find our bankruptcy and go only to Christ and trust. We trust in the full righteousness of Christ. And we as a church stand eagerly waiting for the advent, for the coming of Christ again. Let's pray.